guys, we're going to jump right into it. If you're new, welcome. Really, really glad you're here. You could be a lot of places on a Sunday morning in Portland, a lot of amazing churches around the city um, and other things going on. So glad that you're here. I sincerely hope that you feel welcomed, um, especially if you are new or new-ish, you're just kind of checking things out. Guys, we want this to be a community where anyone might experience truth, grace, and new life in Jesus Christ. That's our, our strap line, our vision statement, as it were. And, um, and we feel very passionately about it, especially the anyone bit. If you're not a Christian, you're not in the wrong place. Um, we hope that, well, if you're here, obviously, unless you've been tricked into coming here or you're just terribly confused, there's a very good chance you're here because you're open, you're, you're exploring, you're checking things out. But if you've not actually made that decision to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to put my faith in him and, uh, and, and try this whole Christianity thing out, um, you're in a great place because I believe that one of the best ways to come to an understanding of what that even means and to begin to experience that perhaps before all the pieces come into place and and you start to make sense out of what that means, the best way to do that is in the context of a community where you can have an ongoing conversation with people, where you can hear truth, but it becomes more than just an abstract concept to think about. It's more than just a cerebral experience. It's a very real experience. And when we gather like this, our prayer is that the very presence of God would be here And in that sense, we would experience truth, we would experience grace, and ultimately, we would experience what Jesus himself described as new life. That is utter transformation, internal, eternal, holistic, lasting transformation in Jesus Christ. So if you're into that, I think you might be in the right place. All of that said... We have been going through a series. We always open the scriptures as our source of truth. Um, God meets us by his spirit. He teaches us. And one of the primary ways that he does that is as the scriptures are taught. So this summer we've been going through a series that's been exploring the ramifications of Jesus' work on the cross, specifically as it applies to normal, everyday categories of life. So if you are around about eight or nine weeks ago, you will have remembered a a little survey going out, and there was about 20 categories to choose from. And I said, church, you pick your top five. What practical aspects of your life would you like to see the cross become a greater reality in? And we covered the first slide. We've shown this a few weeks in a row now. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, there is a slide. No pressure, Caitlin. You're doing fantastic. <laughs> there it is. Just needed the encouragement. Thank you. Work, stress, family, marriage, suffering, uh, health and well-being, money, romance. It was last week, and this morning we're going to jump into politics and social justice. Mostly, really, just politics. Let me read this um, to get us right into the scriptures. Mark. 15, verse 38, verse 37, and Jesus hanging on the cross uttered with a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain 
But the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the Roman centurion who stood facing him, saw this in this way, he breathed his last and he said, truly, this man was the son of God. All of the gospels account for this tearing of the veil, the temple that separated us people, sinners, broken people from the very presence of our creator, God. The veil was torn as Jesus breathed his last, thus bridging the gap, eliminating the divide, repairing the relationship that we were always meant to experience with our creator, our heavenly father. And so the veil is torn. This morning, let's ask ourselves the question, what are the practical implications of that, however you might understand that, to politics. And let me just say as a disclaimer right up front, I don't really enjoy politics. It's not my thing. Um, I think politics are important, obviously. Um, they are a very real part of our lives, especially lately, it would seem. Um, but I've always had to sort of push myself to engage and, and read and, and be informed and even vote when it comes to uh, things like politics. So I'm putting that right out there. I don't think about this stuff all day long. I mostly look on in interest, wondering um, what's really going on out there and what's really motivating people, leaders, officials to do what they do and if any of it's really all worth our while. So, just a bit of confession for my side. The cross in politics. I was at a birthday party yesterday, my son's birthday party actually, he turned eight two days ago. So we had a party for him at Cathedral Park in St. John's. And uh, there was a woman there, lovely, lovely lady, the mother of one of the girls in Isaac's second grade class last year. And uh, she's been along to the service here a couple of times, her and her family. Lovely, lovely woman. Uh, but I know from the few conversations that we've had, she's very politically minded, um, very passionate and vocal about the things that she believes and feels when it comes to politics and social justice. So I saw her at the party yesterday and I said, I thought of you this week. Um, this was like my attempt to invite her to church again. I said, uh, I thought of you because tomorrow I'm going to be speaking on the cross and politics. And she very politely rolled her eyes at me and she said, ugh, the very reason why I hate church and religion. So I didn't invite her to church this week. Um, but we had a nice chat. Of course, she was thinking more of politics in, like, in terms of drama. You know, church politics, office politics, family politics, the drama, the jockeying, the competing, the, the facade that we often associate with politics. Um, and that certainly is a part of all politics. But I don't want to go there. And I told this lovely woman that not, that's actually not what I was thinking about this week, and that's not what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to talk about the very real politics that are actually impacting our lives, our country, and at some level, the world we live in. What does the cross have to do with any of that? The simple answer is absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. 
I want us to look at a few portions of Scripture. We're actually going to start in the Old, and we'll skip over to the Gospels, and then take a final peek into one of the epistles to set us up. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7. Can you see that all right? It's a bit small. This is an ancient prophecy foretelling the coming Jewish Messiah or their proper king, the one who was to rescue them from their oppressors. And the prophet says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. as They're glad when they divide the spoil. In verse 6, the prophecy goes on to say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Picking up on that theme, we read in the Gospel of Luke, the angel Gabriel speaking prophetically to Mary, the virgin mother of Jesus. And he says in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end, just as the prophet Isaiah prophesied. And then finally, the Apostle Paul, in writing now as a response, in reflection to the life, the death, and the resurrection of King Jesus, says this in his letter to the church in Colossae. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. We're talking about kingdoms. We're talking about a new government. We're talking about a hostile takeover, an overthrow of one system, and an establishment of something new. The scriptures are thoroughly political. They describe the formation of an entirely new government, they foretell the overthrow of an old corrupt system, the radical redistribution of power and resources, and the ultimate establishment of a new kingdom, one marked by everlasting peace, justice, and righteousness. The scriptures have everything to do with politics. Now, at first glance, that could very likely sound simply like um, the description of another superpower rising to the top, another promise made about a leader or a government 
being established at the expense of another. But I would argue that what the scriptures describe as this, this new government, this kingdom that Jesus himself came to establish is wholly unlike any other governmental system or kingdom that this world has yet to see so far. I want to talk about the five aspects of Jesus' politics. If Jesus was to run for president, what would his, um, what was his agenda be? What would his, his uh, issues be? What would his platform look like? I want to look at five aspects of Jesus' politics. Number one, greatness. We've heard it said just recently, um, something about America being great again. What makes a nation great? According to Jesus' politics, greatness comes from sacrificial love. Greatness comes from sacrificial love. Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 through 28. Jesus, in speaking to his disciples about greatness, says, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be your bondservant or slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the cross. King Jesus, in inaugurating his kingdom, the government that was to rest upon his shoulders, does so through the ultimate act of service. That is, he lays his life down for us. In fact, it says in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, which is exactly what Jesus did. Sacrificial love is the key to greatness in the kingdom of Jesus. What about legislation? Um, I was a bit of a political activist at one point in my life. You can go to the next slide, please. Legislation leads to heart transformation. Go to this next slide, please. So here's a picture of me at a press conference in San Diego. This, was, this is actually a screenshot from my Twitter feed about five years ago, over five years ago. How about that? Just a student paper. It's, I felt like a pretty big deal. But uh, it's funny, huh? Three universities uh, were being forced off of campus because it's, you don't hear about it so much these days. This was about five years ago, but there was a bunch of drama, a bunch of controversy to do with could a Christian club um, sort of hold to their status as an official society on campus and say, well, we actually believe in the scriptures so if you want to be a leader, if you want to hold office, we have certain biblical standards that we, we really ascribe to and, and want, want our leaders to live by. That, of course, can easily be argued uh, to be discrimination. 
It's highly debatable, actually. Um, it gets into some pretty deep constitutional waters. So this was happening on, on a few university campuses in Southern California. We, along with two others, ended up filing a lawsuit against the California State Board of Education so that we could basically stay on campus as Christians. Um, we were immediately removed, of course, um, as the lawsuit ensued. Uh, over a period of years, we ended up eventually winning the lawsuit, which is interesting, and uh, some kind of legislation was drafted, at least in California. So I share that to say I think legislation's important, and on some level, I even have some pretty deep convictions about it. But I also believe that legislation, at best, is just a plug in the hole. Legislation is not the ultimate answer to our world's problems. Because our problems really lie at the heart of us, of men and women. Let me read this to you. Paul, our famous apostle, he says in Romans 6.17, But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, that is, by nature, bound to live out lives of brokenness, of selfishness, of pain, of insecurity, of sin. He says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. This is one of the big, big deals of the Christian faith. We sang about it this morning. Jesus didn't suffer on the cross. Jesus didn't overcome death and resurrect back to life to simply deliver us a new set of rules to aspire towards. Jesus fulfilled the law so that he could give us the spirit who fills our hearts and compels us to love people and our creator like Jesus himself modeled for us. The big deal of Christianity is that at its core, at its very essence, it's a quote-unquote religion of freedom. We're no longer bound to simply try to uphold certain laws or certain moral rules. Those are good things. I'm not suggesting that you go out and like rob a bank because you're free to do so. But the freedom that comes as a follower of Christ is that something takes place in your heart so that you're free to love people like God. Legislation leads to heart transformation in Jesus' kingdom politics. Let that sink in for a second. Keeping the rules, religious moralism, is exhausting. It's exhausting. And ultimately, 
it doesn't really address the root, the heart, the reason why we have laws and rules in the first place. Now, you might be thinking, well, that, that sounds nice, uh, but incredibly naive. Are you suggesting that Christians don't need laws because we're just, just so full of the love of God that, that somehow we, we, we don't ever do bad things? No, I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm suggesting is that legislation is simply meant to help us, to guide us, to remind us that ultimately our problem is in here. And the solution is something so much deeper, more profound and lasting than any policy, any leader or government official might ever come up with. Jesus gives us his spirit which transforms our very heart that we might be set free from living according to the law that we might be free to live according to our hearts and the love that's been put in it. Number three, compassion and participation. I find this one the most challenging. Now, I think we live in a city where we all feel very strongly, or at least we like to talk a lot about the importance of social justice um, compassion ministries, feeding the poor, providing shelter for the homeless, and all of these things. And in fact, if there's one thing that the New Testament emphasizes without question is the utter importance of looking after the marginalized, the needy, the innocent, uh, the widows and the orphans, as the scriptures put it specifically. How do we do that? Now, I'll just speak for myself. I don't want to assume anything about anyone. But oftentimes, my compassion looks like this. And literally like, like that, because usually the person I'm giving a handout to is sitting in the gutter on the ground, and I'm, I'm giving them something. Every once in a while, I'll do this, and we'll have a conversation and I'll look a human being in the eyes, perhaps ask them some questions, try to have a conversation, pray for them, maybe even invite them into my home. That's a rarity. But so much of our compassion in the world looks like a handout. In God's kingdom, he does something radically challenging to how we view and do compassion. God comes down. He steps off the throne and he gets into the muck. He sits in the gutter with humanity. Not just to have a, a pleasant chat and then move on, but he becomes one of us. He participates in the mess, the pain, the brokenness, and ultimately even the death of humanity. You see it in his incarnation, and you see it in an undeniable, um, undeniably on the cross. God's compassion led to his participation 
in our brokenness, our mess. This challenges me to the very core because this means serious inconvenience in my life. But this is the heart of our Father. I'm a dad. I talk about my dad stuff a lot. Um, my little boys mentioned Isaac just had a birthday. He's eight now. All he wanted was Legos. That's all he wants out of life. It's just Legos. <laughs> One of his friends brought him a Lego size box, all wrapped. Isaac, it's, he sits on the table. He comes up to it. He sniffs the box. And he says, Legos. <laughs> I'm not making that up. That just happened yesterday. <laughs> and he was right. My boys love to play Legos with Papa. I'm not a huge fan. I used to be. I got into it a little bit, and I kind of I, I went, went back to childhood. But to be honest with you, I'm kind of over it. Like, and I feel bad because my three-year-old's just getting into that stage now, and I'm just like, I don't want to get down on the floor and build Legos. Like, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> it, was, it was cool for a year. My kids just don't, don't want me to just buy them Legos. They want me to get down on the floor and build Legos with them. That's what compassion looks like in the kingdom, the government of God. I know a few of you in here, like you, you do this, you embody this. There's a team of people who go out um, pretty much every Sunday after our service here and hand out like a couple of, hun a couple of hundred hamburgers uh, to some, some of the homeless community uh, downtown. Um, I did it once. It was great. It was super hot. It challenges me every time I hear about people, uh, Christians especially, doing that. Because this is how God does compassion. Number four. Dissension leads to family. Now, this is what I, I really actually don't like about politics. This is what turns me off. And of course, the media is, is incredibly unhelpful because all we ever really see is the drama and the, just the rage and the aggression. Um, and rarely do we, do we hear the good stuff. But when I look at the kind of dissension and what dissension leads to in the political arena in our country, it rarely leads to stories of like men and women celebrating diversity, listening to each other well, um, embracing their differences. It usually just ends up in shouting matches, fake news, nasty tweets, and just broken relationship. In the kingdom of God, our disagreements shouldn't break our relationships. They should be things that cause us to work through pain, to work through hurt, to learn how to forgive each other, to seek reconciliation, to not leave each other, to not divorce our brothers and sisters, or to marginalize or demonize different people, particularly people within the body of Christ,
but rather we're to argue with each other as brothers and sisters, as family members that have to find a way to honor one another. In God's kingdom, there is no us versus them. There is no right versus left. There is no those guys and the good guys. There is simply Jesus on the cross and the world. In the kingdom of God, even those who we might consider our quote-unquote enemies, our brothers and sisters who we're meant to love. Because like all of the rest of the people we don't agree with, the people that like super annoy us, obviously we're all on the same page in here, I'm sure. We should, take, we should just quickly do a whip around the room and find out who everyone voted for this last year. That would be interesting. Can you say church split? Hmm. There is no us versus them. There's Jesus on the cross and the world that he died for. The scripture says that while we were still sinners, God in Christ died for us. Why? Because he loves us, which is why we're commanded to love even our enemies, which is why even when there's dissension, it's not meant to end in hatred and in marginalizing other people with different opinions. It's meant to create opportunity for us to actually love each other when it's really, really hard, even if we never, ever agree. Because we won't. We won't. That's family. That's the kingdom of God. I love what Paul says in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.15. He says, here's a trustworthy saying, deserving a full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It's a saying. I don't know if Paul actually believed that he was the worst sinner to ever live, but he's saying this is a saying. It's a trustworthy saying, full, uh, de- deserving of full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to die for sinners, and I am the chief. Guys, that just levels the playing field. So the people on the other side of the political fence who you are convinced are ruining the world, it's not them versus us. It's Jesus on the cross and the world. We're all in it together. We've all cooperated. We've all fallen short. We've all made mistakes. We've all messed up. And Jesus loves each and every one of us. His grace is just as available for the political candidate I loathe as it is for me. His grace is just as real and redemptive for the people that we protest against on the streets as it is for me. Because this is fundamental to Jesus' politics. We've all fallen short and God loves every one of us. You know who the hardest person is to show grace towards? It's the religious bigot who has no grace to share. 
Those are the people we want to like, like we just want to stay away from our church, right? The religious bigot. And Jesus doesn't reject them. Jesus died for them. Jesus welcomes them into his family the same way he did me and you and us. He wants to change them. He wants to heal them. He wants to transform their heart. Let me tell you something. There's no amount of legislation in the universe that can transform the heart of a religious bigot except for the love of God in Christ. They're included in the anyone that God has called us to love, to embrace as a community in this city. Dissension is a setup for family. Naive, maybe. Would it take the power of God to pull off? Absolutely. And that's why we're here. Last point. Oh, I have to share this quote, though. I love it. J.I. Packer, one of my favorite British theologians, wrote, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption into the family of God. Guys, this is the climax. This is the, the pinnacle. The grace of God was given to us that we might all be adopted as equals into the family of God. Last point. Protest and pain. This, this is probably a harmless question. Did anyone attend any of the protests in Portland over this last year? Yeah? Yeah. Protest, I think, is a, an integral part of any political system. I mean, not only is dissension healthy, but being able to take a stand and protest against injustice, to be able to stand and say, that's not right. It's important. On the cross, we see God's definitive protest in the face of evil. God doesn't just stand by and hope for the best. God comes down into the muck and then takes his stand in the face of evil. The cross is God's protest where there's injustice, where people have been lied to, have been marginalized, have been taken advantage of, have been made to feel less than human. The cross is God's no in the face of all that is evil. And it's not just sentiment. It's not just an idea. It's not just a Hallmark card. It's not even just a vote. It's the creator of the universe coming down from heaven and saying no more. It ends right here. Death stops now. It's God's protest in the face of injustice and evil. Guys, it sets the precedent for political protests in the kingdom of God. But remember, we don't drop bombs. We don't yell at people we don't like. We protest 
through an act of sacrificial love. It might be violent. It might be aggressive. It might be definitive. It might be shocking. It might be offensive. But it's love. It's always sacrificial love in the government of Jesus. That's the politics of our king. The scriptures call us citizens of Jesus' kingdom. A kingdom that he inaugurated in his death and resurrection nearly 2,000 years ago, and a kingdom that he's going to perfectly establish upon his return when he comes again. What do we do in the meantime? We live as if we were present citizens of his kingdom as it currently exists in heaven. We get to live as if the reality of Jesus' government is being established here and now. But we must remember, the church, Christians, we are not the kingdom of God. I'm not Jesus, in case any of you were wondering. There's some kooks out there who, who, yeah. We're not to subscribe to a dominion theology. It's an idea that it's our jobs as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, to establish the kingdom itself. Um, there are certain, how should we say it, sects, uh, cults out there who subscribe to a dominion theology. And as much as we participate in the kingdom of God as it's being established, as it will ultimately be established on earth as it is in heaven, to the extent that we participate in that, we are foreshadowing, we are enacting a future reality. We're becoming like sign holders in the crowd. Every time we we sacrificially love another. Every time we lay down our life for someone who we might otherwise think of as our enemy. Every time we get down into the muck and participate as our act of compassion. Every time we protest in the face of evil, we're waving a sign saying the kingdom looks a little something like this. Someday when the king returns, the kingdom of heaven as it's fully intact now will be ultimately established. This government will become a reality. Eternal peace, everlasting, justice, mercy, righteousness will reign forevermore. And this is why the book ends with the prayer, Jesus, come. Jesus, come. This world's a mess. Politics are out of control don't know what's going to happen to our nation in the next three to four years or beyond. Jesus, come. Come.